You're listening to Grace Matters, conversations establishing believers in the truth. This episode captures our Grace Matters panel from the first week of November in 2021. This panel discussion was a chance to challenge some assumptions about the prevailing narratives, particularly regarding ethnicities in our community. Popular media might have us believe one thing about how different ethnicities feel, but the lived experience of folks right here in Andrew, Lillington, and Fuquay may be a little different. So this conversation was a chance to push on those narratives, to figure out what's really going on in our local churches and how the gospel is still transforming lives. We were grateful to meet with these two pastors for lunch, and we teased out a lot of our lunch conversation during the course of this panel discussion. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and the ways that it points to the centrality of the gospel as the only way to really live in unity across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines. Well, good evening and welcome again to Grace Matters, uh, where we have conversations that establish believers and ones that I think will encourage you and cause you to think sometimes. Um, And I think you will be encouraged tonight by the the conversation we have ahead of us. I know I was when David and I met uh, Rick and Ed for for lunch earlier this week. Uh, If if tonight's conversation is half as good as that, you're in for a treat. Um, And even on the way here, I wasn't exactly sure how to bill what it is we're talking about. And uh, David and I uh, kind of put our heads together, and actually it was his analysis of earlier conversations that uh, really uh, shed some light on us. And what we're going to discuss tonight is how to maybe challenge some of the assumptions that uh, that we tend to make about race, race in the church, in our uh, community, Northern Harnett, Southern Wake County area, and uh, ways that uh, will encourage our local churches. And that's one of the areas that we heard about even in the sermon this morning. Um, If you think of two things that have been on my mind recently is the importance of the local church. Even Paul writing to Titus and Timothy and and the others that he names in his letters, they were ministering within local churches uh, throughout the countryside. So they were in, in cities along routes and these people uh, establish elders. They, once they establish churches, they uh, install elders. And these people, from 2,000 years all the way up to today, were committed to life within the church in a, a very multicultural uh, region within the Mediterranean, um, the, the world at that time. And then on, on the flip side, we see throughout Scripture, and especially in the book of Revelation, that God is saving for himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we in this area have been blessed, uh, especially recently, to have the nations come to us. Our communities are growing, our neighborhoods are growing, and it's wonderful to see God's people, wherever he had them scattered throughout the world, um, many of them are being uh, are led to worship with us. And we have a, a privilege tonight to speak with two ministers of the word, who uh, serve their churches, and they happen to be, in our North Carolina American context anyway, ethnic minor- minorities. It's not necessarily primary in the discussion of anything that we're going to have tonight. And I think what you will see is that each of us up here 
recognize the, the primacy of, of the gospel, that whenever we talk about any of the things that have happened in, in the recent months or years, despite the controversy in society, the church is still holding fast to her Lord. And I've been encouraged in that, and I, I hope you are from hearing from them as well. Why don't we go to the Lord and ask his blessing on our conversation? Father in heaven, we praise you for the opportunity to gather and discuss the Savior and how he impacts our lives, how your spirit that you've sent to indwell us uh, binds us together. I pray that the fellowship of the saints would be sweet, that the words spoken would be honoring to you and edifying to all who hear. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with us tonight is Dr. Edward Fubara and Pastor Rick Gutierrez. Uh, Edward is originally from Nigeria and currently lives in Anger. He is a husband and father of four. He serves as Associate Professor of Business and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs in the Lundy Fetterman School of Business at Campbell University. And as if he didn't have enough work to do as a professor, he's also a student in the MDiv program in the Divinity School at Campbell. He holds an MBA and PhD degrees in management from Michigan State University um, and has previously earned a bachelor's in political science from the University of Benin in Nigeria. He's a published author both in journals as well as a, a book. And if you think he wasn't busy enough, he's also the associate pastor at Newbreed Church, which you will find on 401 between Fuquay and Lillington. Welcome, Dr. Fubara. And Pastor Rick, is uh, he's a local boy. He grew up in Anger. He attended uh, UNC Chapel Hill, where he received his Bachelor's of Science, and in 2003 accepted the call to full-time ministry, where uh, he has served uh, several pastoral roles in, in this area, in Apex and Fuquay area. He is also a husband and father of four. And in 2013, planted Anthem Church, which many of you may actually see or pass as you come here in, in Anger. And also uh, committing, uh, con contributing to the local community, serves on the board of directors in Anger's Chamber of Commerce. Rick, thank you for joining us. Um, I want to hear from both of you, so whoever would like to start out, just maybe tell us a little bit more about you, yourself, and how you came to minister where you are. So, uh, first of all, good evening. Thank you all for having me. It's, uh, it's really an honor and a, and a pleasure to be here. Um, how did I come to minister where I am? So, it's kind of by accident. <laughs> um, we, my family and I moved from Michigan to uh, North Carolina to Boys Creek in um, 2005. And at the time, I had served uh, my previous job before I came to Campbell. I had served uh, at a church for several years, part-time, then full-time. Uh, had done just about everything there is to do in church, from driving the bus to cleaning the floor to burials, funerals, uh, weddings, the whole everything. Youth ministry, I, di I did it all. And so when I got to, when I moved here, um, I was determined to get to the church and just sit in the back and be quiet. And that didn't work out. So uh, my wife ran into 
our pastor's wife uh, in the grocery store, and she invited her to church, and we went. And I think by the next Sunday, I was preaching. So uh, that's 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 my story. Um, yeah, my story is way too long to tell. But basically, I never wanted to be in the ministry. I was a business major, and I was in pharmaceutical medical sales for years. And then that happened. God called me to the ministry, and. Um, I thought I would only ever be some associate pastor, some uh, role in a church, you know, whether it be pastor of discipleship or college and singles. And that's all I ever wanted to do. Never wanted to be a head lead pastor. Uh, was not a desire. Definitely never, ever wanted to be a church planter. And I had swore that once I had graduated from Hornet Central and moved away, that I would never, ever move to Anger, North Carolina. And so, as the cliche goes, never say never. Uh, and so, next thing you know, through what at the time seemed accidents, but in hindsight, it's clearly God's providence. Uh, a small group comes together, and we plant this new church in Anger. And uh, here we are. You know, um, next month will be eight years since we planted the church. In America, as well as the American church, has seen a lot go on in the last few months, a couple years, and um, between COVID and social unrest, uh, you can name any number of things that the, the church has had to wrestle with. How are your congregations doing, and how are you ministering to them these days? <laughs> so the, the tricky part of the last year and a half, right, since really March of 2020 is the fact that they don't teach us this in seminary. Nope. Nope. No. Right. Oh, at least I missed that day. Yeah. Uh, that's possible. <laughs> um, there are no books. There are no conferences for how to deal from a ministerial standpoint, from a church leadership standpoint and navigating what are uncharted waters in a situation where we were joking just a little before we got started, a situation where you can't please everyone and you won't make everyone happy. And no matter what decision you make, someone's gonna fuss or complain and send an email uh, stating their opinion in maybe sometimes a nice way and sometimes not so much. Um, and then that it, it's not wasn't just simply disease, it wasn't just simply a virus. Uh, it, the political nature of it and wrestling through that, that in most of our churches, we'll have people that lean one way or lean the other and right. for various reasons. And, and so navigating that um, while trying to as much as possible, you know, depending on the Holy Spirit, what is right or best for this church right now? And it may look different than another church, and that's completely okay. Right. And so in pastoring people through it, because at the end of the day, it's a heart issue where someone's thoughts or ideas about what may or may not happen and how to best go about it to a large degree is a heart issue. And so that that's the tricky part. It's like just knowing exactly when, where, how, who. And when you run into the tension of always bringing grace to bear upon the situation, bringing wisdom to bear upon the situation and. Um, what I do know is that pastors that we have struggled, it's already hard enough. Uh, the statistics of burnout among pastors, even before COVID, was tremendous, yeah. like a shocking number. 
uh, and it's even been exacerbated over the last year and a half. Yeah, there's local numbers for pastoral burnout that are pretty sobering. Um, I had a conversation with Mike Sowers, who is taking a position uh, with the Baptist State Convention, and he's intentionally trying to equip and catalyze uh, pastors. And, I mean, a small portion of his job is triage uh, for pastors that are on the verge of, of quitting um, because it's, it is a, a growing percentage. I don't want to put any numbers out there and then be wrong, but it is alarmingly large. Yeah, the, the big one that I remember hearing years ago is that 1,500 gods in ministry leave it every month just in the U.S. That's pre-COVID. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a shocking number. So then what was, what was the biggest bless, blessing for Anthem Church in the last year then? Uh, the biggest blessing is that it actually united the church. Mm. So now granted, that took some time. So that wasn't last March, April, May. Right. It wasn't June, July, <laughs> August. Um, and we were very blessed. We, like, we really never had any real contentiousness take place. There was never any real disunity over anything. But as, as the year went on, the, the unifying, uh, the catalyst that the last year and a half has been in the life of the church, um, it, it's just, it's been amazing. Uh, that to me is the biggest blessing. And then part of that is that we kept hammering the need for community, that we need each other. We need to be in front of one another. And if it requires Zoom, we can do Zoom. If we can be in front of each other face to face, we will do that. But this need for community and yeah. that we've seen our church develop friendships, like genuine Christian friendships, like a, there's a, a deep, uh, robust, just community that's further along now than it was a year and a half ago. Hmm. What has been one of the hardest things then for New Breed Church uh, through, through the last 18 months, two years? Um, it hasn't been overly difficult for us. Uh, so when you say the hardest things, you know, it's not, it hasn't been um, uh, devastating for us. One of the things we were really fortunate with is that um, our church was debt free. And so we didn't have to worry about people showing, because a lot of people will not give if they're not present at church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, for many churches, most churches, I would, I would think that giving is really essential to keeping the lights on and the mortgage paid. And fortunately for us, not having any debt, um, we weren't stressed out about money. Um, we also have a child care center, and the child care center has remained open uh, throughout the pandemic. Hmm. And not a single child has got sick. Not a single um, staff member has been sick. That's awesome. Um, and so it's really been, those things have been a blessing. Um, I guess the hardest part would just be not seeing people. There were some folks that we didn't see face-to-face for over a year. We saw most of them on Zoom. Um, there were a couple people who were nervous about Zoom as well, so there were people that we didn't see, and that was tough. Um, just not not being able to, you know, if you ever if you ever come to our church, somebody will hug you, whether you like being hugged or not. <laughs> At least pre-COVID, <laughs> somebody yeah. would always hug you, um, and you know, not being able to hug and touch and handshake and just hang out and be silly uh, was that's that was the toughest part. 
I guess you, you both serve differently because Rick, you're full-time vocational uh, senior pastor. Um, Edward, I, I, as associate, uh, I don't know how much time in the week or, or the month that you would put for, it's not your primary job. Have you noticed um, the way you minister to people in your church has changed in the last year and a half? Um, so for me, it's more, um, it, it hasn't changed significantly. You know, it's again, partially because that's not my full-time job. And so, um, you know, I'm still in touch with people on Sundays. I'm still, you know, making the phone calls and doing the emails. I'm actually the person that does most of the electronic communication for the church. So I guess one change is that I'm interacting with people a lot more online and trying to be thoughtful about how to encourage people who I don't see face-to-face and um, to use the virtual medium to really maintain connection, as Rick said, maintain a sense of community. Um, Yeah, I would say that a year and a half after the initial kind of shutdown, it seems for me to have kind of returned to what might have been a more typical flow. But those first two months in particular, March, April into May, um, it was so much phone work. Um, I think, I, I, and I, it's not an exaggeration, I was spending at least 40 hours a week on the phone um, because I'm the only staff person at Anthem Church. So I'm like, and we do have elders, but um, I felt it, the need to personally call everyone. Mm. And I went out of my way to make sure, and I, I didn't actually get everyone on the phone, but I tried my best. And I just, I didn't want to come out of the pandemic or that moment and someone say, oh, the pastor never reached out to me. Like, I, I just, I didn't want that. So, like, I personally would call everyone. And the interesting thing is that there are some, like, mega introverts, super shy people that I would see them on a Sunday morning and you barely get a hello out of them. And I'd call them on the phone, and it's like a 50-minute conversation of which I got two words in. Right. Um, and this just goes to show how much people need, like, that individual yeah. connection with someone. So that was what made those first few months really challenging. And then the ministering over the, the year after that, from May to May, of helping to shepherd out of fear, um, that with, but never doing it with any sense of guilt mongering kind of a thing. Um, and then now trying to return to what I think is a healthy, good, normal, uh, things have changed because I think the pandemic has tweaked our perspective and perception about things. But now like as far as just workflow, ministry workflow, like it's returned to something more normal. Uh, we're, we're already kind of headed in that direction, but I want to shift gears just a little bit. Uh, to maybe more abstract ideas that uh, has been uh, in news headlines as well as in the conversations in churches across the land. Um, how has your congregation responded? Um, what are the thoughts or actions that have changed in light of all the different things to hit the headlines? Um, we started listing the deaths of um, young black people, and I guess the, the list that makes the news um, every cycle could go on and on, um, and, and that, that particularly uh, 
struck a high note in the nation last summer. Um, we've we've already begun talking about COVID. Are there things that um, your church is feeling um, that that you're aware of that maybe they wouldn't have faced ten or fifteen years ago? And I'm going to go ahead and begin answering for. You. I'm sorry to do this, but Edward, when we had a similar this same conversation at lunch the other day, you said for for reasons that you were going to explain, and and Rick was nodding right along with you, agreeing with every word that you don't feel that you are the ideal participant for this conversation. Do you want to get into maybe why that is? Yeah, so um, I hate to try to represent all black people <laughs> for all time, Yeah. Um, particularly since uh, my experience is not typical. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm an educator. I'm I have three degrees. I work at a university. I think I may have mentioned to you that um, it's always inter- it's always fun to me to think about the fact that um, there are very few uh, faculty members uh, on our campus who are uh, who are black. Uh, I have been asked when people ask me when I tell people I work at Campbell, they have asked me, "What do you coach?" Um, because that's the that's just kind of the lay of the land. So again, I'm not you know sort of the the typical uh, Harnett County uh, African American person. I don't mean that in a in a pejorative way. Um, also, I lived at least half of my life in Nigeria, and uh, my father's Nigerian. My mother was American, and so that also shapes my uh, sort of culture and background. And um, you know, so my experience has has not been. Uh, typical. Do you want me to say more, or are you going to come back to that? Yeah, well, I guess, uh, Rick, would you say similar things? I'd say the similar in the fact that, to say that I'm not the ideal, um, I think I would say that from the sense that I don't necessarily conform to any specific narrative on racial, ethnic issues. Like, I'm Yes, uh, my dad's from Costa Rica. My mom's from Honduras. They met in New Jersey. Uh, I am a Hispanic, a Latino. Um, I don't necessarily view myself through that prism. Hmm. Um, That being said, I mean, I grew up in Anger. My family moved here in 1981. Uh, It was an ocean of white folks and black folks. Uh, I was, because my family literally was the one outlier. My parents didn't speak Spanish. Uh, The culture was, for us, like culture shock. Uh, We were sojourners in a foreign land. I mean, and uh, that I experienced, quote unquote, racism from whites and blacks. Um, And and by racism, I mean, you know, just uh, phrases, you know, demeaning or or offensive things that are just hurtful that a person just shouldn't say to anyone else, regardless of the reason. Um, But that being said, um, I went to school, I graduated high school, I did well, I went to college, I got to UNC Chapel Hill, I was a business major, I've been in medical pharmaceutical sales, I went to Southeastern, got my master's, you know, know, hopefully one day I will finish my doctorate. I got married. I've in. I got a, a house. I got a loan. I, I was never kept from experiencing what, for the most part, everyone else gets to experience as a law-abiding, tax-paying citizen in in the U.S. So, 
you know, so I don't necessarily further promote a specific narrative. I can only speak to that which I've experienced. There's some hurt, and uh, God used it to make me who I am, and it, it doesn't hold me back, and it never has. I do think that's an important qualifier, you know, that's similar for both of you, is that you don't presume to speak on behalf of the Hispanic community in Andrew or the black community in Andrew, nor should I presume to speak for white PhDs or white Star Wars nerds. Um, I can't speak on behalf of a, a large group of people, uh, even as I might share my experiences. And so sometimes I think that uh, for clickbait, um, our media will platform a particular person as if they are speaking on behalf of all people of a certain type. And so it's important for us to be discerning of uh, that tactic when it occurs, uh, or even if someone well-meaning slips into that tactic of speaking on behalf of uh, a people group. Um, there, there's very few contexts in which that is probably appropriate. And so uh, thank you guys for your honesty in that way. Uh, and we're grateful for your experience. Um, and so that's one of the things that um, the, the last year and a half, two months, two years, have been layered of the issues. So we touched on briefly kind of the fact that um, COVID played a role in um, in some cases unifying and in some narratives disunifying, which is interesting. Uh, and then we've uh, raised the issue of deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the politicization of all of these things. So getting more abstract, but kind of responding to it from our experiences, though, um, what was it like in your churches when George Floyd was killed in the summer? Um, what kinds of concerns were raised, if any, uh, during that time? We know what it was like here at Grace in our majority white context. Uh, we know how it was addressed and how Pastor Brad spoke to that that following Sunday. But what was it like in your churches when those things occurred? So... Um Neil asked me a similar question the other day at lunch, and my initial response was nothing happened. And that was probably a bit of a surprise because it was such a, a pivotal moment in America, you know, the summer of 2020. Uh, but for, for most of us, I would say that, well, let me back up a little bit. So for our church, um, yes, we, there was a few, some conversations here and there, but it, it, you know, there was no sermon series. There was no big response to uh, the deaths of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor um, or, or really any of the upheaval of summer of 2020. Um, and, and frankly, you know, the, at least I think that the reason behind that is because you know, it was kind of considered you know, this is this is how it's always been. And, uh, you know, finally, other people see it. Um, and, and you know, the, there's a there's a narrative in the black community um, now speaking on behalf of all black people for all time. Um, so so there's a narrative in the black community of, you know, the impact of race and racism, the um, the the wickedness of police and the unfair treatment of black people by police. So that narrative has been around for a very long time. And um, uh, 
when it became a big deal in the summer of 2020 with these very high-profile deaths and the protests that followed, um, you know, the response was kind of like, well, you all finally see what we see. Uh, welcome to our world kind of thing. Uh, and so for us, you know, our church is 100% black at this point. Um, there was no real need for conversation. Uh, you know, th- these are things that, and, and, and I, I keep saying that it's the narrative in the community because um, that, you know, it's not everybody's experience in the community. Uh, some people have experienced it. And for, I think, in, in large part, people just kind of believe this is the way it is. And, uh, you know, we've seen data and statistics. Um, I read um, Fault Lines because of the previous, one of the previous Grace Matters conversations. Um, and, you know, read the statistics, I'm sure many of you have seen as well, that, um, you know, some of this, some of the narrative that's in the media is, um, is not completely factual. I mean, just based on, based on the data. But when people have lived this experience um, or have heard it over and over again, and then the media reinforces it over and over again, it's just hard to convince people that there's any other story to be told. Um, Can I add two more things to that? So one, I think um, one of the things that's just been huge is the fact that in today's world, everybody's got a camera in their pocket. And so there are events that have taken place over generations, really, that were never chronicled, and nobody ever found out about them. Or when people complained about them, they were dismissed. Um, you know, there were cover-ups and so on. Uh, but it's only in the past, uh, you know, decade or so that now everyone has a video camera in their pocket, and so all of these events have been. Uh, chronicled, uh, you know, some broadcast live. And so there's just no denying what happened. People still, funny enough, people still try to deny it, even though we're watching the same video. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, many, many people in the African-American community are simply saying, it's about time. It's about time you saw it. It's about time you, uh, you heard from us. And, and I guess one more thing, sorry to uh, go to to pile on here. Um, I mentioned this at lunch the other day too. I think it's just um, I think it's important uh, to recognize sort of the generational differences as well. So mm-hmm. almost everyone in our church is from this area, either Harnett County, uh, Cumberland County, or Wake County. And so those who are older than I am, who've grown up in this area, remember what it was like you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And it wasn't very pleasant, <laughs> right? Um, they were called names. What, uh, there, there's, a, there's a word that they were called that I won't use in this. I thought about saying it, but I figured it would be a, a little inappropriate. Um, but, you know, the same people who called them names still live <laughs> in this area. So uh, the folks in our church who are in their 60s uh, or even 70s, you know, the same people who mistreated them back in the 1960s are still here. And now they are, some of them now are judges and uh, uh, city leaders and uh, business people. And, you know, we're just supposed to pretend that 
1960 never happened. Uh, and so I say all of that to say that there is this sort of narrative that is deeply entrenched. It may not be completely factual. The media continues to, uh, to show basically one side of the story. Um, but, you know, this is people's reality, even, if, even though they may, it may be an exaggerated version of reality. One of the things that was key to uh, our previous conversation was um, the fact that uh, the gospel is the answer to misrepresentations of reality. Um, we, we live into a better story, and we need to be responsible to tell that story well. And so when competing narratives are triumphant, in our culture, uh, the only truly transformative way forward is, is the gospel. It is the better story to tell. Um, but well, and we'll get to into some more specifics of well, what does that mean? How does that land on the ground? Um, but Rick, what kind of things did you guys encounter during that particular layer of the last year and a half? All right. So at Anthem, we're mostly white congregation. We do have blacks. We have Hispanics. So a little bit of a little bit of diversity. I wish there was a little bit more. Um, but here I am, ethnic minority, head pastor of a mostly white church. So I'm speaking truth to power. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I'm doing what I can representing all of my kind, right? Uh, no, I say that jokingly. Um, no, I, it's been interesting because I, I have felt some responsibility to shed light from the standpoint of a minority who has um, access, right, or street cred, accessibility, into speaking to certain things that maybe a lot of whites may not have thought through in certain terms. So, um, you know, like initially when the George Floyd thing happened, and that was not just tragic, that was a travesty, you know, like what took place. And the world goes in insane over it, and I think rightfully so. And all of a sudden, I see lots of whites on Facebook and got their little black square, and racism is bad. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, good for you, what, but are you really addressing this issue because you're putting a black square on your Facebook post? Uh, and so then I did feel the personal need to preach a specific sermon, uh, a message. It was more of a personal testimony, quite, quite honestly. Uh, giving a little bit of my experience growing up in an area that what's it like to be on the receiving end of being offended and, and demeaned simply because my parents didn't speak much English, if any at all, and I'm, I'm slightly darker than white or not as dark as blacks, for instance. Uh, and so I felt the need to speak into that. And specifically, if I, I mean, if I can go back in my memory to that, that message, it was that, you know, we, we get outraged over these extreme moments of exaggerated racism, right? Someone kills someone because they're black or, or something, like, which is awful and terrible, but that's low-lying fruit. Like, everyone should be outraged over that. Where does that come from? Well, that comes from inevitably a tribe, a, a, a locality, a community, a people group or something where certain hostilities are fomented underneath. And so there's a lot of like 
like really easy things that are said. So when I moved to Andrew like nine years ago, back again to plant the church, uh, moved in and met a neighbor. And the first day I met him, he was talking about something terrible going on in his life. And he's like, oh, it's a bunch of Mexicans. It was like a bunch of Mexicans getting out of a car. So he was using like racially offensive language to describe a negative thing that he was going to, to my face. I literally walked in the house and I told my wife, like, we moved in next door to a racist. And, and it's like, and now he's one of my dearest friends, I kid you not. And, and it's, because we about it. you challenged that assumption ultimately. The Lord, the Lord led you to challenge that assumption yeah, over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, that's what I'm tr- I try to do. Not every week. And, and, and so like one good example, I was with a friend, group of guys, men, white guys from church. We're just talking. And all of a sudden, the conversation goes to country music. So all these guys are talking about, oh, who did you listen to in the 80s? And they're talking about Dwight Yoakam. And they're talking about you know, Travis Tritt. And like all these guys. Right? I never listened to country music. And so I'm out of the conversation. And they say, like, Rick, who did you listen to? I was like, none of them. And they're like, why? And I said, because it's too ethnic. And their instant response was like, how in the world is that ethnic? It's the opposite of ethnic. And I was like, to you, to you it's not. Because see, like our perception colors so much of how we view things. Like to them, ethnic would have to be Caribbean music or rap music or, you know, Latina. That's ethnic. But country music is not. And to me, it so is. It's <laughs> for a bunch of reasons. Because I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't grow up driving my granddad's pickup truck. And, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I just, I don't relate to, you know, the three-legged dog in my house that I'm still crying over. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's important. Um, I do think that's an important thing for, for majority culture to be reminded of that, that it, there is still... So that's one of the things that uh, we threw this question on the screen and uh, what to get us kind of thinking in these terms of, you know, scripture and ethnic groups. Um, so racial and ethnic, I think, are distinct terms. And we can talk more about that at some point. But um, but ethnicity is, is certainly uh, a biblical category. And so that ethnically, um, there are things that are distinct for white folks. And those things are more clearly seen in contrast that one of the smaller benefits of a short-term mission trip is largely for white people, if they're in a non-white space, they realize that they're white. Um, But here, we don't think about that in the same ways. We may navigate the world without that being terribly uh, in the front of our consciousness. Um, But as soon as a conversation about country music came up, like the ethnic distinction was clear in that moment for y'all. And so... I think as our community becomes more diverse, as Neil opened us up with, thinking about the hundreds of homes that will be built in our backyard, um, those won't all be occupied by white people. Um, as our community itself continues to expand, as Apple comes to the RTP area, as, as Amazon continues to expand its globalization, uh, there are so many opportunities for people who are not white to be in our spaces. Um, and so for many of us to just be conscious of how... Uh, how some things are ethnic um, in the ways that we interact with each other is, I think, a really helpful little takeaway. Yeah. I, one thing I'll add, it's just a little illustration, I think, to point out, I think, the benefit. So, you know, God redeems everything. And, and he can, what, what is meant for evil, he can turn good real quick. So I think one good thing that came as a result of George Floyd and, and just the heightened thing um, the analogy, it's like, as a pastor, I'll get that dreaded phone call from a couple in the church. 
you got to meet with us. The marriage is over. We're calling attorneys. And so, you know, you rush in as a pastor to that counseling situation, you know, what's going on. And, and the man typically is the man. He's like, I don't know. I thought everything was fine. She served me divorce papers. I had, I had no idea because this man can be a bit dense and dull and meatheaded. And oftentimes we don't see the red flags and what's happening in, in there. And meanwhile, she's been saying things for years, right? For decades even. Like, this is a problem. Fix this. Change this. Do this. And then finally, snap. The rubber band snaps. And divorce paper. And that's what the George Floyd thing felt like to me. For decades, for generations, the black community has actually been, there's a problem. There's a problem. Can at least speak into it. Some of it perceived and, and maybe a bit exaggerated, some of it real, you know, in, in all shades in between there. But it was like with George Floyd, it was like divorce papers were served. And then also it's like, oh, I had no idea because people really weren't fully listening for, for a bunch of different reasons. Right. So sure. I think that the advantage or the, the benefit of what took place last year is that at least now there is a certain awareness of certain things and now the obligation of Christians and the church like now with a sense of awareness how do we better speak or minister into that space to individuals so one of the things you mentioned that was that you uh, you read fault lines after hearing us talk about it a little bit um, and so in response to a lot of these things flowing out of last summer was the the then clickbait worthy uh, uses of uh, critical theory and critical race theory. So landing that in our community, though, what have we experienced? I mean, we know a bit in, in our church of the things that we've dealt with. Largely, nothing has been uh, overt in any way or, like, has caused a stir or controversy in particular. Um, but that's, that's here at Grace. But, like, have there have these things been concerning for New Breed or for Anthem, where you guys are navigating space a little differently than we are? So I want to challenge the assumption that I might have. Rephrase that question. So rephrasing that, um, have the, the flowing, like chronologically, out of the things that happened in the summer, um, critical theory and critical race theory became a hot topic of conversation, became uh, clearly at play in different parts of political culture and academic culture. Um, but narrative may be that like those things are also um, finding themselves in the church. And that was part of, you know, the reason that Vody wrote fault lines was to address that directly. But it's like, have, have we experienced that in our community here in Andrew? Have your churches been wrestling with critical theory in any particular way? Is it a is it a deep concern for people in your in your church? That's a bit of a trick question. That's why I asked you to rephrase. Well, sure. It. And the the reason why is that I think that the majority of your average citizen, it's really not a conversation that people have thought too much of. Mm -hmm. It's really I would say maybe March, maybe February at the earliest critical theory, critical race theory, right? That that became a super term that the, it's all over the media, right? But before that, I, I don't think you really saw it in the news right. outside of like intellectual kind of elite circles, you know, maybe at certain points of certain evangelical circles, there's yep. like a slight bit discussion, you know, Vody Balcom was the first one to really start talking about it. And that was, 2006, 
it, but no one was really into that. Maybe around 15, 2015, 16, a few other people kind of started picking that up a little bit. Yep. Uh, I know for me, I, I stumbled upon the whole conversation last May, a year and a half ago. Like something is odd. Something is fishy. Like I'm watching the news and I try to be super equal opportunity. I watch Fox and CNN. Right? Like I'm a weird creature because I want to know as best as possible what different folks are saying. And, and I'm like seeing the news, I'm like, this, something is off and awkward. But I think that the majority of people are kind of unaware. And now, depending on where someone sits on the political aisle, right. the phrase critical theory or critical race theory means very different things. Mm-hmm. To where, to one, it is uh, a newfound form of evil that has never existed before. It's going to destroy the universe as we know it, just like Thanos snapping his you know, fingers. <laughs> and on one other side, all of a sudden, it's like there's no such thing and uh, there's nothing to see here. Like, well, they, those both can't be true. Like, right. you know, like I'll, in the last two weeks, yeah. there's no such thing. It doesn't exist. People are making it up. Like, well, no, that's not true. So what I have tried to do, and I believe that my responsibility as a pastor is to educate, and I perceive that what truly is critical theory, and I have done so much personal work and study in it, read books, I, I mean, I, I basically went back to seminary on my own at home to understand where does this come from, what actually is it, how does it influence or infiltrate, um, and yes, teachers at the local school level aren't teaching the what is law curriculum to right. some degree, but its influence is in throughout culture in, in various stories and narratives and assumptions. Right. So, but people for the most part don't do the work of like learning 1950s postmodern philosopher reading. Like yep. people aren't <laughs> going to go to, people aren't going to read the work of a Karl Marx or of the Frankfurt school in Germany in the right. 1910s, 1920s. Like, and so most people can't actually go back to the roots of what is actually Marxism, which is what critical theory is. It is blatant communism, socialism, Marxism, and those terms are synonyms, and that those are antithetical to the gospel. They're unbiblical doctrines. They are a worldview. They are a religion. Hegel and Marx were fanatical anti-Christian, anti-Christ. They wanted to destroy the church Go, I'm, I'm re, I've, re, I've read Karl Marx stuff firsthand. He hated God. He wasn't an atheist in that he didn't believe in God. He was the atheist in the sense that I believe in God and I hate him. And I want everything dealing with Jesus to be destroyed. And their, their, their pens, him, and then ultimately Lenin and Stalin would pen these statements that you cannot be a Christian and a Marxism. And that comes from them, which is true because the, the, they're radically opposing worldviews. Um, and, and I could chronicle the list. We don't have time for it. But my point in bringing that up is that as a pastor, I feel an obligation to warn people of anything that is a false gospel. So we would easily teach against a prosperity gospel, right? And, and so in the same token, I feel like I need to know what this other thing is that I can then apply the gospel to it so that we could be aware right. for the sake of our children and so forth. Yeah, no, if, if I must confess that Jesus is Lord and be an anti-racist to be saved, then we've added something to the gospel. And the gospel may have implications towards all these things. It does have implications towards all these things. So like James but, Cohen, 
famously said that to be a Christian means to always be working toward liberation. Right. Well, that that literally can't be true if you believe the gospel, because the gospel says that a Christian is someone who is liberated. Right. So at New Breed, what kind of concerns, like when people, when we hear these things on, on, on media or we engage with these things in, uh, in culture, how does it land at New Breed? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I'd say that it's really not a part of the, converse, of the conversation in our church. It's just not that relevant to the people that, that I work with, the people that I serve at our church. And that's really helpful to hear because, again, I would assume as a white person consuming media that's built for me to sell advertisements, uh, I would think, man, every black person everywhere talks about critical race theory. Never. (laughs) But um, many, so so it's a, I'd say it's a really complicated sort of uh, discussion for for us because many of the um, ideas that we hear in critical race theory are, again, part of the narrative I was talking about earlier that we are, uh, as black folk, are familiar with, have embraced as true, have, in some cases, experienced. So uh, the, the pushback against critical race theory actually sounds racist. Right. Um, and uh, I think that most, of, most people are completely unaware of the kind of uh, depth that Rick was just talking about in terms of the relationship between critical race theory and um, anti-God, anti-Christ kind of ideas. Hmm. Um, again, most people have no clue about that that sort of uh, uh, connection. And so there is a, a sense in which we need to be careful and thoughtful uh, in order not to go down the road and get kind of caught up in uh, anti-gospel sort of ideas. Um, but again, it's not really something that we are wrestling with. Um, I think uh, I think you might have said this, that the definitions are kind of all over the place. And so I think that's one of the um, challenging issues with the whole discussion about critical race theory is that, you know, it means different things to different people. And... Um, it's not, it's not completely clear what you're talking about when you say it. As you said, some people are just throwing it out there as a buzzword. You know, it's this, it's this horrible thing, and we've got to get rid of it. Um, let, me, let me throw in maybe two little examples that, that might help here a little bit. So um, one of the, I was about 30 minutes ago, <laughs> 30 minutes ago, I was listening to NPR, and um, there's a story on, the, on there about a, a library, a school library, a school district, I think it was in Texas, where they are concerned about critical race theory, so they're um, banning certain books from the schools. And one of them was a book about Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks <laughs> is somehow evil and dangerous, or a book about Rosa Parks. Now, maybe there's some context with the book. So let's, you know, there is some room, there's there's some wiggle room here. They're also banning Hidden Figures, a book about uh, NASA uh, scientists uh, and mathematicians who were black women. And, you know, it's something that, it's it's kind of an untold, unknown story. And so this school district is banning 
these books because of their concerns about critical race theory. And so again, for the typical uh, black person, you know, that just doesn't, that just doesn't sit right. It's, it sounds like more of the same old, same old. It sounds basically like racism disguised in some kind of uh, abstract theoretical construct. Um, and, and so again, the, the I do think, you know, and Rick and I had some conversation about this uh, back on, um, on online some months ago. I do think there is some uh, need for us to help people think well and to help people, to help educate people uh, about some of these nuances that they may not see. Um, but, I, but I don't think that it's a uh, pressing concern at this point, just and from my, my perspective. Can I jump in? Yeah. So, yeah, like this is part of the, the problem with the conversation in the U.S. now with our current political climate and the media being what it is, that ultimately everything becomes a polarized decision, right? There's, there's no opportunity to have anywhere in any sense of middle or gray. Yep. And so this side says this, this side says that, and it doesn't allow to speak into certain things. So like, you know, I, that report, Rosa Parks is an American hero. So if someone's throwing out a book just because it promotes Mary, uh, Rosa Parks as a hero. Well, and they're doing it under the label of critical race theory is bad. There's clearly a grotesque misunderstanding because multiple things can be true at the same time. And if we're going to be adults and be thoughtful and be critical thinkers, we got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We, we can say racism does in fact exist. It exists in the United States. That is clear, and anyone who would say that it doesn't is just either crazy naive or a liar. Because you know why I know there's racism in the United States? Because there's people in the United States, and people are sinners, and people are racist. You can debate whether or not there's systemic or institutional racism, and that's a political discussion, right? You know, yeah. I'm, I'm not of that persuasion that believes that. But regardless, I know that racism is real because people are inherently racist, right? And, and so, like, so that's the, the main dilemma. Um, so that can be true while simultaneously saying I don't need secular worldly philosophies to answer what is a heart problem. Right. Racism is real and it's a sin problem, a heart problem. And the only solution is not a political party or a, a cable outlet or a politician. They're not saviors. They're not God. The only solution is the gospel. The only solution is the Bible. that says that we're all made in the image of God and that the same blood of Christ that saves a white guy can save a black guy, brown guy, yellow guy, etc. Right. And women. <laughs> not just God. Um, That's another conversation. Right. I know. So <laughs> anyway, like, so we, we get, we get so myopic yep. in the way we view things under, and there, everything has got texture to it. And we think there's cookie cutter political answers and there never are. Right. But the only answer is, man, God loves you. Jesus died for you. And that, that breaks down walls. So, it is myopic, but here, and here's like the paradox of that is that we've been talking about some kind of these big ideas that are up in the clouds that haven't really landed in the ways that, 
the narrative might tell us or that I have assumed. Um, so what can we be doing on the ground to love each other well as sister churches, as local churches, as neighbors? Um, that's kind of, we have a couple Q&A that we want to get to, um, but this kind of final question from us would be, what does it look like practically then uh, to not be myopic, but to be, um, to be local, to be up close and actually see one another as, as neighbors, see our brothers and sisters and the other people around us in Andrew and Lillington and Fuquay. How, how might we love each other locally and love each other well as, as fellow believers? So um, I was checking my notes here because I had written something down and I couldn't remember it. Uh, but I'd say I have three, three things to respond to that. One is simply listen. Um, a lot of the time, we just don't listen to each other. Um, and I mean, really listen and listen to understand and not listen to respond or refute. And so if, for example... I, as a black person, say, you know, I feel a sense of oppression. You won't hear me say that, by the way. This is, this is hypothetical. But if I did, I would hope that as my brother in Christ, you would listen and not, you know, be so quick to refute, well, I've got data to show that you should not feel <laughs> oppressed. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> you know, you and your data can go somewhere. You know, this is how I feel. Mm. So listen, really listen. Um, ask good questions. And again, not just to refute, not just to prove that I'm wrong. Uh, if, if we are indeed brothers and sisters in Christ, then we ought to be willing to listen to each other. I, I guess the other thing I'd say on that is that we ought to be a little less confident. <laughs> I, I think, and this is, not, this is not limited to this conversation about race or critical race theory or even COVID, I think we are just way overconfident about a lot of things. <laughs> Mm. And, um, you know, I'm, in, I'm taking a, um, I'm working on MDiv now. I've been a student of scripture for over 30 years, but I'm learning some things that I need to unlearn. <laughs> I'm learning some of the things I learned that I've, that I've taught, that I've preached over the last 30 years are not necessarily right. And yet, I've heard preachers with great confidence, <laughs> you know, share ideas that are not true. You've probably got people on your Facebook feed right now who barely passed middle school science, who know more about viruses and virology than everybody at MIT <laughs> or Johns Hopkins. And they know it with great confidence. <laughs> how, how is it possible that with your middle school science, you know more about medicine than people with multiple uh, doctorate degrees? It just, I mean, again, maybe you do, but let's be a little more humble with, uh, with what we think we know. Hmm. What do you think, Rick? How, how might we love our sister churches and our fellow believers well? 
I mean, isn't that the ultimate question since the beginning of time? Well, yeah. How do we love others? Like, uh, if that came easy, then we wouldn't have run into it so often in Scripture. Like, we wouldn't have to be reminded over and over and over again. Um, To Ed's point, um, not be so confident about certain assumptions or beliefs that we have about things that don't ultimately matter. And I, I do think that that is part of our, our venom, it, even among Christians. We will spew venom over something that doesn't matter. So, mass, does it really matter whether you wear one or not, or someone else does or not, or whether they think you should or not, or whether you think they should or not? Like, does that matter? No. You know, and I know ultimately, and I, and I know there's nuances there. It's like, well, right. so and so is it, or is I get it, right? But to, to you know what I'm saying is that we're we're having these knockout, drag out fights over things that probably don't matter. And and so like the the call to love one another is really to put what matters first. And what matters first is Christ. What matters first is the gospel. What matters first is our commonality as brothers and sisters, that our faith is there, that we may have a bunch of different opinions about different stuff. But if we hold Jesus in common, we hold the most important thing in common, right? Hmm. Um, that what, what matters most for me is to, to love Ed and to love y'all more than I love myself, right? And so if I'm doing that and you're doing that, I think we'll be okay. Hmm. And that, that really is the struggle of love locally, yeah, because it's easy to be done, be worth work, drive home, hit the garage door, just enough to get my car in there, and I'm not even to a full stop and hit it again, so it closes because yeah. I don't even want to engage with my neighbors. Dude, that's suburban life. Oh, good gracious! Yeah, and so to go out of our way to be open um, that it's okay to disagree about some things that don't matter, and we can even hold some positions with whatever degree of boldness and confidence we want, so long as like that it's not disrupting our ability to love other people. We can be passionate about political positions. That's okay. So long as it's not what's ultimate. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it's, it's that political tension that I think is ripping away. Um, you know, what I think for me, one of the, probably the greatest concern that I have as a Christian in the United States is that for the first time, at least in my life, what we would consider to be the evangelical right. We're not the stronghold that we were a year and a half ago. Like we have been ripped apart for because of COVID, because of racism, because of critical race theory, because of all this stuff, right? Governmental mandate. Like we're, we're no longer like the political entity. We don't have the political capital that we did even a year and a half ago. Um, and, and I don't even care about the politics. What I'm concerned about is that we're not together, united, as God's people, the way that we should be, because we're divided over things that ultimately don't matter. So there are three questions that were submitted. One got dropped into this first poll. So I want to throw that out here because, Ed, this is more one that you could speak to potentially. What might the American church learn um, from the Nigerian church when it comes to living in a country with significant conflict, particularly worldviews that are conflicting. Uh, 
You can let that marinate if you need to. We can come back to it. Don't let it marinate. Okay. So a couple of other questions that were dropped. Uh, let's see. How do I fire these? Oh, I got to kill the other one. Um, <clears throat> one question was, is, is a big one again, but how does the Bible define race? Uh, is it biblical to discuss race as, and they're kind of answering their own question, as it's a social construct when the Bible doesn't address skin color in this way? Uh, so what, you're shaking your head, Rick, so now you got to answer. Yeah, what, I'll, I'll, uh, that, that's easy. I'll jump okay. on that, let you marinate on that other question. Uh, that one's easy. The Bible doesn't speak to races. Because the Bible speaks to one race. There is one human race, right? There was one original father, mother, Adam and Eve. Yep. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 clear, clearly answers this. So God makes all the plants, and they're to reproduce, and it says, according to their kind. Okay. And he makes birds, and they're to reproduce according to their kind, meaning that there's different kinds of plants, different kinds of trees, right? There's different kinds of birds, and then the, the marine life, and they're to reproduce according to their kind, you know, tuna. Dolphins, etc., and then the land animals, right? They're to reproduce according to their kind: cows, bears, giraffes, etc. And then God makes Adam and Eve, makes them in His image, and He says, "Be fruitful and multiply." And He leaves out something that He'd been saying for several verses. At no point does He says, "According to your kind," because there's only one kind. There's only one human race. Mm -hmm. Right. We're, we're, we're the same. We look differently. Praise God that we do. It'd be super boring if we all looked the same. Um, and so now ethnicity. Yeah. OK. We see that because there's different tribes and different uh, groups of folks. But that's because God made us very different. And there's diversity in that. Um, but it's interesting that ultimately the whole point of the gospel is that we're being saved out of those people groups, mm. right? From, from, we're being saved from every tribe. It's interesting that that's the language, right? Yep. From it, because we're not this ultimately a collection of tribes. Really, we're meant to be one tribe, God's people. We're being saved from these people groups that are apart from God in order to be the people of God. We who were not once the people of God are now the people of God. That's the tribe that matters. Yeah. So um, related to that would be how likely is it that this topic is controversial uh, because it condones the sin of partiality? In other words, seeing people in terms of their skin color groups. That was um, that I was going to respond to Rick a little bit along those lines. So absolutely, there is one race in Scripture. And as you said, we're being saved out of our tribes. Um, but the, the reality of our lives uh, doesn't, uh, we can't ignore the, the, the way that race operates and the way that uh, ethnicity operates in the culture in which we live. Mm -hmm. um, it is, you know, racism obviously is seen, as you mentioned before, um, but it's, you know, it's a specific kind of sin and it has specific ways in which it operates. And so back to what I said earlier about listening, um, if someone responds to, to me, if I'm talking about uh, racism and someone responds to me and says, well, there are no races. We're all just one. It's the human race and all lives matter. <laughs> you know, you're not listening to me. And, and you are minimizing my 
experience, my feelings, my concerns, my pain. Um, and again, some of it may be uh, uh, misdirected. Some of my pain might be um, as a result of a media that manipulates certain, certain stories. But it's still mine. <laughs> and as I said before, if you're my brother, my sister in Christ, you should care. Uh, at least to help me find help me find the truth if it's if that's my problem, mm. um, and so I think impartiality as as the James describes I think is um, that this is that's that's one way in which the discussion about racism or, and race operates, and so even though it's an artificial social construct of some kind. Um, it's real, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 can something be artificial and real at the same time? I, I don't know. Um, but, but, you know, it is, it, it, is, it, it, it is. The, Aspartame is artificial, it's artificial and, real. and real. It's, I mean, it's, it's the context in which we live. Um, let me go back briefly to the earlier question okay. about Nigeria. So I don't think that's a great, um, Comparison because um, although there is uh, division in Nigeria, it's not, um, it doesn't operate in the same way that we see it here in the United States. So there are, there are, the northern part of Nigeria is very different from the south. The northern part is predominantly Muslim. The south is predominantly uh, Christian, or um, there are some people that worship ancestors and other kinds of. Um, uh, 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 deities of, of various kinds. Um, and so we don't have, even though the country is made up of multiple tribes and multiple um, uh, language groups, we don't have the same sort of division within the church. Uh, we have division, again, more so between northerners and southerners, Muslims versus Christians. And I don't, I don't see a good model there for, talk, for using that to talk about the American church. I just don't see the, 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 uh, analogy there. I think one, one thing though that strikes me would be the fact that for the Southerners, then there's a, it's a different identifying feature. The, the church there is not identifying itself, um, along other identifying properties, but rather the church recognizes itself as not Muslim, as not, as not animist. Um, and I think that is an important thing for, uh, the American church to be reminded of is that, uh, we need not define ourselves along political lines primarily when we are inside the church, primarily we are Christian. So I would see that as a potential correlation between something we could learn from Nigerian church. Uh, but you mentioned something, Ed, if it doesn't bump you too bad, uh, that is actually the content of the, the, the last question that was submitted is, um, you know, when you're talking about listening well uh, and, and potentially then responding to lead someone in truth, how can we listen and support our brothers and sisters in Christ while also loving them enough to walk with them in truth as opposed to affirming them only, and I'm sure that's an intentional wow. word choice. So, <laughs> wow. yeah, how might we listen well while also walking with in in truth? Yeah, it's going to take a lot of work, <laughs> mm. a lot of work to do that. So, 
I think that can only happen in the context of relationship. Um, and so if we don't have a relationship, it's going to be very hard for me to listen to you, especially if your, your, uh, your purpose, your mission is to tell me that I'm wrong <laughs> or that something's wrong with me or something that I think is wrong. Um, so it's going to be, uh, it's going to take a lot of patient work. Uh, and, and, and I think that, um, in order for you to, or you, you generically, anybody to take on that role, it would be, um, hubris to, to try to do that outside of the context of relationship and outside of me kind of welcoming you in. You know, so uh, I've known Neil, we're not close friends, but, but you know, we've had conversations over the last, what, two years or so? And he's come to our church, he's worshipped with us, he's been, uh, he's been cool, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's not showed up to say, hey, that thing that your pastor said, <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at this right here, that's not right. Um, none of that, Right. And so in order for, um, you know, it, it may take uh, a, a while longer for us to grow to the point of in relationship where we can get into those kind of um, uh, difficult conversations. And, and, and hopefully those difficult conversations go in both directions. So uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, I may have some uh, some some misperceptions, misconceptions about racism because it's the it's this grand narrative that we're that we keep getting exposed to in the media. Um, but we're, we're, there are also other you know there are things that that we're concerned about as well. You know, we see the church. I, I think uh, one of you was talking about the church um, being so political, and you know, for the most part the view of white evangelicals is a monolithic sort of view that they're all Republicans, they're all Trump supporters, they're all, you know, anti-racism. And, you know, you have these sort of stereotypes that are also probably not true. Yeah. (laughs) And so, again, in in the, it would take conversation and relationship to find out uh, and to really to really have those those discussions. All right, so real quick, I just want to make sure that I didn't say anything earlier that may have uh, miscommunicated what I was saying, to, and simply because you, you raised it. So like someone says, oh, how many races are there? You know, I, I answered the question, what I, my understanding of the biblical understanding theologically, that there is only one race. So like if, if I am having a conversation with, any minority and they're having a, of a different race as we would call it and they've suffered uh however real or however perceived that you know that the there's a time to answer it kind of that theo, theo, theological way but then there are times where the conversations brought up because of an emotional issue uh, because of their own experience in their own life so so there is we always have to be sympathetic empathetic compassionate always listening and that simply just throwing out there, we'll get over it because there's only one race. It's not a, while it may somewhat be true, or it actually, that is true, 
it may not be the appropriate way or the time to have that that specific discussion. Yeah. Um, it's just like if someone dies and a loved one dies and, well, you know, God, our, God has numbered our days. Well, that, that may be true, but that may not be the time to necessarily bring that up. Uh, <laughs> so I just wanted to make sure that that, that was clear. Um, then as far as like how do we speak into, right, how do we bring truth to bear in all of that, uh, ultimately it's relational. And this is the love local thing. Yeah. And by, by relational, I mean it is literally knowing the people you work with, knowing people that you live next to, knowing people that you're around, in building the rapport and establishing a relationship to be able to have conversations. Because some conversations can't just happen by accident, you know, in line at McDonald's. Like, it's, it's just virtually impossible. And I do, one thing I'm critical of the church in the United States is that we're super lazy. And by that mean that we, we make, it's really lazy to make everything ultra political and seek political answers. So one example, just a kind of a, a throw a grenade in the, in the room is like the, the, say that the marriage agenda of which, you know, for a few decades, we must champion, you know, this marriage agenda. We must have federal and state amendments to never allow homosexual marriage, right? Because the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman, which I affirm that, okay? And so, but all of the capital, all of the energy from Christians was placed on legislation. And so let's say we win that war politically. Let's say there's all sorts of laws and amendments that prohibit, prohibit same-sex marriage and it protects the sanctity of marriage. Have we won? No but it's super lazy. It's super lazy because the hard work is building the relationship and the trust to be able to have conversations in which you can speak lovingly, but boldly into the life of a person. So um, most of y'all don't know me. I, I, I can be particularly opinionated. I can say things with confidence from time to time. <laughs> and uh, and I'm, not, I'm not too afraid. <laughs> I'm not too afraid to just get out there if I feel a conviction about it. And um, it was a year ago. There were several of us in town, including the mayor at the time and a few of the town commissioners, uh, some other leaders and some black leaders in town. And we were getting together right after George Floyd. What is happening? What can we, how can we address this uh, as leaders in the community? What can we do and so forth? And I'm asking a bunch of questions. Like I'm trying to better understand the, per the perspective. And so one gentleman, young, uh, black guy, uh, cool guy, we're getting to know him, and, and he mentioned this country was not made for people who look like me. That's specifically how he said it. And I was like, could you explain that? It's like, because I can't get a loan for a house. Or if I get a job, I don't get paid as well as a white person who does the same job. And so he was chronicling certain specifics like that. Um, and you can look at data, you know, to verify whether or not that's true. But regardless, I'll, I'll concede that point. And, and I said, that is greatly unfair. If that is true, that you would get this job and a white guy would get this job and a white guy just gets more money just because he's a white guy, that is crazy unfair. That is super unjust. And he's like, yeah, so I'm listening to him. And then I said, but brother, because he's a brother, he's a cool guy, his friend. I said, as unjust as that is, and it should not be that way, what I'm hearing 
is ultimately a degree of jealousy, a degree of coveting. I don't have what they have. And I, from a human earthly perspective, it's not right. And Jesus will make it right one day. Like, the, like we're not seeking utopia or, or justice, like a, a utopian justice on earth. That's been promised by God. And so, the, the, and so he literally looked at me and it's like, huh. And so like I, I spoke truthfully in that you're coveting something, you're coveting earthly things. And it's not right that you shouldn't have something just because of the color of your skin. Um, but let's be careful that we're not promoting, I don't want to affirm greed or coveting or jealousy. And it really made for a wonderful conversation of applying biblical truth to the heart of a fellow believer. I've loved hearing the, the role, the impact that the good news of Jesus has had in, in your congregations, in your ministry, and is really the impetus for uh, any action that we have towards our neighbors, towards each other as uh, sister churches. Um, and both of you had spoken of uh, you know, maybe various resources or things that uh, you have looked at over the last year or so. Are there any resources? Um, maybe you would recommend, recommend them, maybe you wouldn't, uh, but are, are there any books or things that have recently caused you to think more deeply? Uh, I made a list because I'm actually really bad about author names. Uh, here are just a few books that I've read and I, I recommend. Um, I'm, I'm someone that, that likes to go to first sources. So I don't want to go to what someone thinks someone else said. I want to hear what the person actually believes about certain things. Uh, I highly recommend read The Devil and Car Marx by Paul Krangor. Amazing read. Um, I would also uh, recommend um, America's Revolutionary Mind by C. Bradley Thompson. Um, pretty tough read, super academic, but he traces uh, the, the birth of the United States from a cultural standpoint, a revolution of mind as uh, a product of the Enlightenment, hmm. which really speaks into a lot of our culture wars today. Um, in Cynical Theories, which is by Helen, um, and I can't even read my handwriting now, uh, Pluckrose and James Lindsay. Um, they're politically speaking, Democrats and liberals who are actually critiquing um, critical race theory and super good insight. And then I do recommend that you read something like How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, because uh, this is what that one side of the political spectrum is saying, go read what that individual says, uh, read um, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, right? Uh, read Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. It's not that I necessarily believe that what they say is right. Uh, I just want to know what they say. And so, because again, I think I need to be educated to be able to speak honestly and truthfully and sincerely. Um, and so I, I would recommend reading those books. We can make these lists available uh, when we post this. So there's two questions left. Both are really good and potentially much longer conversations too um, that I think we'll probably pursue and follow up 
like little podcasts. So one of the things that was harder for me between the last Grace Matters and this one was to do some of our follow-up conversations. But typically I'll meet up and we'll have just a 30-minute conversation about a thing. So I would love to follow up um, with both of you on the idea of, do you think it's permissible, biblically, for a local congregation to be made up of mostly one race, even if the community in which that congregation exists is diverse? So let that, I know, right? You can't answer that right now. So let that marinate. That's one of the questions we'll follow up on. Uh, the other one, though, would be more uh, kind of aimed again at your experience Ed, is, uh, where'd it go? I thought I pinned it. Um, oh, in what ways would you say racism in America differs from racism in Nigeria? How does this experience impact your understanding of racism? So I think that if you want to throw something out, go ahead. But that's another one we can follow up on too. So, well, the answer is really is really short. Um, there, that's challenging my assumption. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my cynical answer would be there is no racism in Nigeria mm. um, because everybody's black, mm. um, and that is ninety something percent true. I mean, Nigeria <laughs> is all black. Yeah. Um, there are the people who are non-black who are in Nigeria are basically expats, and there are a very small number of people who've been there for for generations, uh, mostly Lebanese, and um, now some Chinese who've been there for a few generations. Hmm. Uh, but racism is not a concept. There are Nigerians who come to America and discover that they're black after they get here. Um, so, yeah. And on the earlier question about the reading list, I am in graduate school and working and family, so sorry. <laughs> I'm, reading, <laughs> I'm reading what Tony Cartledge tells me to read. That's great. Is there any final comments you want to toss out uh, about how the gospel is the answer and that is the thing that challenges our assumptions about anything we have talked about tonight? Um, so first of all, thank you again for the opportunity to be here since we're wrapping up. Um, absolutely, I agree with, uh, with that. So to be crystal clear, yes, <laughs> the gospel is the answer. Um, and the, 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 the problems are, you know, flow from the human heart. Uh, sin is the problem and the gospel is the solution. Um, so please, if I said anything that gave you any other ideas, um, let me be clear about that. Um, I still think that there are structural and systemic issues that go beyond individual hearts, and we could have another conversation about that some other time. Uh, but sh but definitely, and, and I think that the gospel would also fix the systems. So if people in the systems, people running the systems were... Uh, you know, followers of Jesus, real followers of Jesus, real followers of the real Jesus, mm. um, that that would change the systems and the structures as well. Yeah, so thank you. I had fun. Uh, hope y'all did. Whoever <laughs> listens has enjoyed this and gotten something out of it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's really nowhere, nothing else to say that 
Christ is always the answer to all things. And if we keep him seated supreme in the throne of our hearts, that's everything. That changes, that changes everything. And, uh, and ultimately, there is this tension between hope and joy and grief and suffering, where in this world we know that there will be many sufferings. There will be injustice and, and all of this, this discrepancy between um, all sorts of the good that we should have and the bad that we all experience. Um, but in the midst of it, God is with us. And he's coming back one day and it will be wonderful. And, you know, all these questions and things we struggle with won't be an issue anymore. And that's what we're looking for. And I think that if we hold that supreme and we bring that to bear in the lives of everyone around us, it will make some difference. It clearly it has to. It will make a difference. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your time and your insights and for joining us this evening. Thank you. Uh, let, let me send us out in a prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that uh, your people, your saints, are able to come together and uh, examine the truth and the impact that Jesus our Lord has had and continues to have by the proclaiming of what he has done and what you are still doing uh, in lives in, uh, in America and across the world. Lord, where our words have uh, failed to be in accord with your character and with your word, I pray that they would be dropped from memory and uh, the truth of who you are, as we have discussed tonight, would challenge us uh, to leave our, uh, our baggage behind, our, our sin that would beset us, and to follow hard after you, to mature to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, bless us, guard us on our way out, bring us in again to worship you in one accord. We praise this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you noticed with that final question and answer time, there's some things that we still have to talk about. Take a look at the podcast list over the course of the next couple months, and you should see some more episodes following up with Pastor Rick and Pastor Ed. If you have any questions that you would like answered in addition to the ones that we had in the Q&A time, send an email to gracematters at graceccnc.org and we'll do our best to work it into one of those supplemental podcast conversations. Until then, you've been listening to Grace Matters, conversations establishing believers in the truth 24-7.